Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, director of the Cairo Center and a co-chair of an organization that is attempting to bring about a moral review of who we are, where we stand, and where we should be going. Welcome to Seldom Said, Liz. Thanks for having me. Certainly is our pleasure. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Great. So, as you said, my name is Liz Theo Harris, and I am an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, and I'm an anti-poverty activist. I'm a mother of two, and I was involved and have been involved in grassroots work uh, for really my whole life. Uh, I got involved in the National Union of the Homeless about 25 years ago and have been doing anti-poverty organizing amongst many of our poorest communities across the country since then. Um, in the last couple of years, I've been working with Reverend William Barber out of North Carolina and, and many, many others to build a poor people's campaign for today. Um, it's called the Poor People's Campaign, a National Call for Moral Revival. You mentioned the Cairo Center and the National Call for Moral Revival. Can you elaborate on both of those affectations so that the listening audience will be able to relate directly to them? Great. So the Poor People's Campaign, a National Call for Moral Revival, is an effort in about 40 states to build a grassroots moral movement from the ground up with those that are most impacted by racism and poverty, ecological devastation, and militarism in the forefront, and working hand-in-hand, side-by-side with moral leaders, with activists, with all people of conscience who think that the real issues of our day are the fact that we have fewer voting rights today than we did 50 years ago, the fact that there's 140 million poor people in this country, um, the fact that, that there are 14 million households that can't afford water, um, the fact that pollution is killing people, uh, you know, more than almost anything else, uh, and that we have a, a war economy and a military budget um, and a, a militarized uh, country that, that doesn't value life. And so the Poor People's Campaign is about deep-dive organizing um, amongst grassroots people to, to build up a movement. Um, I'm also the director of the Cairo Center um, its full name is the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, and we're housed at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And we're uh, a program that's interested in looking at how human rights, um, fundamental constitutional rights, and our world's religions are central um, and important in building a social justice movement. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I come out of a, a family of people who who think that, that things could be better for more people in this country and world. Um, and we have religious traditions and, and uh, constitutional traditions to say that, that there have been people in history who have stood up to say that we could do better. Um, and so I'm standing in that tradition still today, um, trying to, to bring about a, a larger change. There are those in political life who take the position that poverty is a relative term, 
I've always opted for Dr. King's feeling that it's an absolute. What is your definition? It sounds inane to even ask it, but what is your definition for the listening audience of what poverty essentially is in this richest country in the world? So, you know, the definition that we're working from in the Poor People's Campaign is is a, a broader definition of of who is poor in the society. Um, we're using the supplemental poverty measure as well as the poverty line, um, you know, two measures that our government has developed to, to try to look at, at who is struggling in this country. Um, you know, so... But but what we're, we're we're saying is that if people don't have adequate food, if people have to make decisions between paying for their heat and having medical care, if people are are not, you know, uh, going to the doctor even if they have insurance because they can't afford the copays because they can't afford um, some of the medicines they're being prescribed, um, that that all of us um, and again the with. The, based on the supplemental poverty measure, there are 140 million people in the United States who are poor and low income. And and other um, statistics tell us that 80% of folks in this country at some point in our lives will not be able to make our ends meet. And so we're trying to show that the reality of poverty is much more severe, it's much more extreme, it's much more prevalent, than people might be be talking about and thinking about, but that actually poverty, according to the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, takes more lives every year. 250,000 people die from poverty. takes more lives than cancer and heart disease and heart attacks combined. And so it's a, it's a major problem, but it's one where people are not talking about um, the way that this condition is impacting people of all races, of all genders, of all sexualities, and from all parts of this country. Now, you'd mentioned being centered at Union Theological Seminary. There are many examples of religious groupings, organized churches, pastors, and so forth, who are taking the position that one prays for better times— it would seem that, in your opinion, and I would certainly subscribe, the time for prayer is always relevant, but the time for action is now. Am I overdoing the comparison? Uh, I'm. Can you can you phrase that in a slightly different way? I'm. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm fully. Um, in terms of of prayer, um, can, can you can you say that again to me in a different way? I'm sorry. Perhaps using a correlate, a uh, few years back before the Good Friday Accords, the situation in North Ireland, many of the Catholic churches there simply wanted their parishioners to organize and pray for better times, pray for alleviation of the difficulties they were experiencing. Do you equate that with a kind of acquiescence? Do we live in a time when prayer certainly is valid? It's the core of our religious and spiritual beliefs, but it's time to take to the street and make the physical change through activism. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's it's not an either-or, right? Um, I think that we need prayer, and prayer takes lots of forms, and we need to take to the streets. And in fact, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is um, from Luke 18, and it's, it's the parable of, 
of the persistent widow. And and the way that that story starts off is uh, it says that Jesus was telling the disciples that they must pray ceaselessly and without stopping. And then he tells a story of a woman who has been wronged um, and who keeps on going to a judge, a judge that doesn't care about human beings, that doesn't care about God, to plead her case for justice. Um, and then it says that she keeps on coming back, and it's not because the judge actually becomes just or has some epiphany, but because she is so persistent um, with her, with pleading her case, with praying out her case, that he um, grants her justice. And and then it and it and then the the parable concludes saying like, so that's why you must pray ceaselessly, right? And so so this is to me a great example of how there isn't an either or between prayer and activism or between piety and and prophetic action but that actually the way that you honor god the way that you worship god as is said in deuteronomy as is said is throughout the, our biblical text is um the way you pray to god is by how you live your life and how you're working for justice in the world and um and so i think we do need to pray in small and big big ways um for people that are experiencing injustice in our world today, and that their prayer has to enter into the street, into the public sphere, um, and into changing the policies that are actually impacting people's lives and making them unjust and, and, and without dignity. Perhaps just ending uh, in this particular aspect of the topic, pursuing it with one final question, Dr. King of my own generation and perhaps many in the listening audience always took the position that Christ gave him the message and Gandhi gave him the method. And then there was the antithetical feeling proselytized by Malcolm, who took the position that you do this to me and I in turn shall do it to you. Have we reached the point where we can no longer be patient if indeed 140 million people are impoverished? So I I agree that we in no way can wait. Um, and just like Dr. King was saying, you know, at the last years of his life, why we can't wait. And and definitely Malcolm X was was talking about you know bringing this impatience into the into society and 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 forcing us to to have change. Um, you know, we I, I wholeheartedly um, believe that um, that that with 140 million people experiencing poverty with, you know, uh, 43.5% of people experiencing poverty in this country with, um, with the kinds of, uh, realities where folks are living with raw sewage in their yards and in homeless encampments and without health care and people's kids are dying because they, they have preexisting conditions. Um, you know, we can't wait, um, uh, when we were doing the 40 days of moral direct action um, in 40 states across the country and in Washington, D.C. This, this spring, as a part of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, we had a, a young leader from Virginia from the Fight for 15, uh, an important advocacy effort of low-wage workers. And, and he said, our backs are against the wall, and all we can do is push. And I think that that's really telling for these times that, that we're experiencing, um, you know, with all of this kind of deprivation, all of this misery, and all of this poverty, all of this racism, that that people can't wait, and and people are are 
are being compelled to to act in concert together in proactive um, moral action, um, moral uprising, um, to to say you know people's lives matter and we need to figure out how to how to make society better for everyone. You mentioned Liz earlier. Uh the idea of an epiphany. Can I subscribe or ascribe that to your own experience? Where is there a moment when you realized that this was going to be your life focus? So I think there's many moments, um, but one that was really important in my development in my life was uh, back in the 1990s when I was working with both the National Union of the Homeless the Kensington Welfare Rights Union out of Philadelphia. And I was spending some time on a tent city, a homeless encampment where homeless families of all races were, were living together because the Philadelphia shelter system was closed and pulled up and homelessness was increasing at an alarming rate um, when there were actually more abandoned housing um, units in Philadelphia than there were homeless people, but but moms and their babies were being told to go sleep in their cars under bridges and on the streets. Um, and uh, at that tent city um, that was on the um, lot of an abandoned Quaker lace factory, um, where about two hundred fifty to three hundred fifty thousand jobs had left um, the area in just a short period of time, um, that I really realized that I had a, a call and it was a religious one to organize amongst poor people um, and to to build a movement modeled after the movement that Jesus Christ was building 2,000 years ago, um, a movement led by people that are most impacted by, by injustice, by poverty, um, and uh, a movement that is incredibly hopeful um, and life-giving because it's about um, society being able to, to make life good for everyone. And so... You know, living at that tent city and, and spending time with families there, you know, I think was a really important moment in my life. Um, it showed me both the power and agency, uh, moral, political um, agency of, of poor folks. Um, and it showed me that, that you know, uh, anywhere where God's children are being hurt, um, we are called to, to unite with them in order to, to change those conditions. And, and that's what the biblical stories tell us, um, and that that's what we're called to do as people of faith. You use the phrase spending time with people there. Would you take the position, Liz, that the only way to truly understand is to live with the folks, so to speak, to experience what they experience? Well, I think it's about... Um, I think, you know, again, if, if 80% of, of the United States at some point is going to experience poverty, we're not talking about some group over here that is so different from any other group of people. Um, we're talking about the majority of people um, in this country, you know, experiencing some level of injustice, some level of deprivation, some level of poverty. And so I, I think that we actually already have, you know, basically the least of these is most of us. Um, and I, I, I think uh, how we then uh, wake up this kind of sleeping giant um, of people here in this country who are experiencing, you know, poverty and oppression um, and, 
and be able to transform the society to work better for everybody um, is by grassroots organizing um, and and by being in community with each other. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's not that we have to necessarily get into each other's shoes. Um, I think so many people right now are experiencing this, um, but don't know that they're not in it alone or it's not our fault or... Um, or that we could do better. And so I think um, a lot of what it's going to take is for us to, to kind of come together across all the lines that kind of divide us and, and build something that is big and beautiful and, and can actually transform society. We're within a little over a minute of our first station break. It's usually indicative of a fine program that it's going so quickly. So I would ask you to consider the following answer. I would have to break for station identification and so forth, Liz. But it would seem that the ultimate solution to all of this is the redistribution of wealth. Do you feel that's feasible? And again, I know that's a complex question. It's a multifaceted question. And we're going to have to take the break before you answer it. But I'd like you to consider that. And then perhaps we can relate it to the coming elections. So all of this... uh, doesn't come from the barrel of a gun or from a loud voice, but at the ballot box. And the key seems to be to organize, to let our voices be heard, and to reach out to those who are voiceless and show them that they can control their own destiny. Again, when we return, I'd love to hear your opinions in regard to this question of redistribution of wealth. But for the moment, we'll take our first station break. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. We'll be back in a second. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. Special guest today, the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, director of the Cairo Center, and a promulgator of a movement toward moral awakening in the United States, expressly in regard to the poor. Many of us... uh, have walked behind people who were called activists, others walked behind people who were called revolutionaries. Do you consider yourself, Liz, one or the other? And would the redistribution of wealth in this rich country of ours be a totally revolutionary act? And is it feasible? So I appreciate this question about, you know, can we do it? And and, and can we redistribute wealth? Um, you know, what the figures tell us, what the stats tell us, the study that we did for the Poor People's Campaign called the Souls of Poor Folk Audit, um, what it tells us is that we have the resources to end poverty. We have the resources to promote voting rights. We have the resources to curb environmental destruction and degradation. Um, The question is really building up the will to be able to do so. And so to me, the answer is absolutely yes. if it takes only 45 minutes to build a prefab house, but we have tens of millions of homeless people in the society, well, well, we can solve that. Um, that's a that's a issue and a problem that that is completely within the realm of possibility. Um, and so, what we've done is come up with a set of demands, um, and those demands are are visionary, they're revolutionary, they're radical. Um, and they're entirely um, possible and redeemable because uh, because there are things like single payer universal health care, which actually would 
would be cheaper for this country to have um, than the system of um, privatized health care that we have right now. Um, there are things like universal um, education uh, and and paying for public um, college and universities um, for anyone who wants it. Again, the, the figures around it is that it doesn't take much resources. It just takes will for us to do it. Um, you know, if we spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the military and less than 15 cents on health and education and anti-poverty programs, um, the money is out there. The resources are out there. The solutions are there. We just have to be building up a movement that says, that we, we need these, that these are the issues of our time, um, and and we therefore are going to live into it and, and make those a reality for us. And so we can do it. Um, you mentioned Union Seminary. I would uh, be curious if you could describe to the listening audience your accommodations, your present working location, a description of a day that involves your laying hands-on and trying to deal with these pertinent issues? So right now in the the role that I'm playing as the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, uh, a national call for moral revival, I'm spending most of my time traveling around the country, meeting up with the 40 states that have coordinating committees. Um, we're holding uh, canvassing and organizing. We're doing trainings. We're doing hearings. And so so most of the time I, I spend is, you know, doing Bible studies and communities and preaching, holding hearings of, of leaders, um, and, and you know, connecting up with, I think, the real heroes and heroines of our society today, the real saints of our society today, because folks are out there, you know, organizing and, and trying to make life better for themselves and their communities um, and having some great success, but they're not always reported on. And so that's what I spend my time on. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very fulfilling work. There is some on the other side of the aisle who will take the position that the term racism, sexism, bias are often too often used. Do you feel that the impoverishment of so many in this country is tied lock, stock, and barrel to the race issue? So one of the things we did as we were trying to figure out what states to focus on and what issues to focus on is, is we, um, we put together a mapping project. And we first mapped out uh, what states had enacted racist voter suppression laws. Um, uh, used gerrymandering and other voter suppression laws, um, and used systemic racism uh, to divide people, divide poor people in particular, and all people across and uh, um, racial groups. And what we found was that the, the 23 states that had enacted voter suppression laws also had the highest rates of poverty, had the the highest rates of child poverty, had the least people insured with medical care had the, the, the least protections for immigrants and LGBTQ folks, had uh, the most environmental um, Superfund sites and devastation areas. Um, and so what, what it says to us is that, um, that often what happens in our society is that we use racism and systemic racism and racist voter suppression in particular to be able to hurt everybody. Um, and so... You know, when, when we're asked with this question of is it race or is it class, 
the answer has to be yes. Um, because if you look at the history of the United States, you have the genocide of the indigenous people, you have chattel slavery, you have unjust immigration policies from our very founding. And, um, and, and so the problem of racism is, is real, especially as it, as it plays out in keeping people divided, including keeping poor white people and poor black people and poor Latino people and poor Asian people and poor indigenous folks all in separate categories. Um, Because when you look in history, when poor people have come together across those racial groups, across those racial lines, then real social transformation has happened. And so, um, so, so we definitely, you know, look at the problem of systemic racism, in fact, start there um, and tie it to the fact that the majority of the people who are poor in this country at this time are, in real numbers, are white, um, and that dividing people um, by race has, has, has contributed to bringing everybody lower. The 1968 effort to have a Poor People's March to Washington of course, uh, is short-circuited by the tragedy of April of that year. Are you planning anything similar? So this past spring, uh, starting on Mother's Day, May 13th, and culminating um, on June 21st, which was 40 days later, the summer solstice, and then two days later, um, June 23rd, in 40 states across the country, um, the Poor People's Campaign organized the largest and most expansive wave of nonviolent civil disobedience in the 21st century. Um, and we were very inspired by what Dr. King and others were trying to do back in 1968. Um, we had thousands, tens of thousands of people participating in states across the country. About 50,000 folks were actively involved in the campaign. Um, and uh, you know, literally millions were following along online. Uh, every major national um, news network um, talked about the campaign, and there were tens of millions of social media impressions about that campaign. Um, and it was it was because we need a poor people's campaign in such a time as this, and it was also saying the fact that that fifty years ago, when Dr. King and others were setting out to to build the campaign, um, we needed to not just commemorate or celebrate, but we needed to reach back and pick up the baton and carry it forward for our, our day um, because, you know, that campaign was really cut short. And so so we are continuing to organize in states across the country. Right now, folks are engaged in, in canvassing and organizing and hearings. Um, we're working towards other big actions and activities um, um, as we really carry this Poor People's Campaign forward. And so we definitely, you know, are, have learned from um, 50 years ago and have studied deeply what Dr. King and others were, were proposing to do and are adjusting it to, to our time. What links are you formatting with the political venue so that in point of fact the persistence you're exercising in demonstrations and activism see positive results at the ballot box? So what's very important for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is that we don't see these issues as left versus right. We see them as right and versus wrong. Um, and so the folks that were participating in the 40 Days of Moral Fusion Direct Action 
folks were from all different political parties and political persuasions. Um, we are in the process right now of, of registering people for the movement um, and then also having folks see that their engagement in the political process, um, but not around a particular party, not even necessarily around particular candidates, but having candidates have to come and hear what issues we need to be front and center in, in, in our day. Um, today. And so, uh, you know, we're a politically independent um, movement, um, and we are, are trying to build up the power of poor people and of moral leaders so we can change the policies that are, are keeping people poor. Um, and, and we don't want to go through another election like 2016 election, where there were 26 debates in that presidential election. And in the primaries and in the general election, and not one of those debates took up poverty, took up systemic racism, took up living wages, took up universal health care, took up, up up education um, in any of the ways and that we we see as as important. And so so that that can't continue to happen. We we have to make our political system um, talk about and and address and and follow the demands that we have on it um, that that are about you know people living better lives than they are right now. Mark Twain, in describing the situation of the country, once said he constantly dreamed of a man beating a mule with a stick. And when asked in his dream why you're doing that, he said, I have to attract his attention. What is the greatest difficulty you've encountered, Liz, in attracting the attention of those who have that last circle of hell who are simply apathetic, who allow when they should speak out against what have been the difficulties so far encountered? So I think we've mostly encountered successes. Um, I think to have had between five and 6,000 people in the course of six weeks engage in nonviolent civil disobedience, be willing to put themselves out there, be willing to get arrested for what they believe in, um, for the... the um, for, for, for tens of thousands of people to have come forward... Um, around these issues that are, are rarely discussed in our um, daily life. Um, you know, I think that that's really been very exciting and very empowering and very um, invigorating. Um, and, and to make it so that we have to have these issues out there. Um, people, I don't think, are apathetic. I think it's just that right now our media, our politicians, our society doesn't talk about the issues that are relevant to people's lives. Um, and so what we found in going to communities, especially poor communities across this country, is that people are ready for a movement um, and are building one. Do you feel that we're too involved in personalized politics, and as you just recently said, not involved in the key issues that affect people's lives? Can you say that again? Most certainly. Do you feel that we're really falling victim to personalized politics rather than politics that deals with the visceral needs of human beings? I mean, I think that when we watch the news cycle, um, what, what keeps on happening is that we're, like, we follow the tweets instead of following the issues that are affecting people's lives. And, um, uh, you know, we're trying to do something about that. And, you know, there's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands, 
millions of people in this country whose lives, you know, who, in the words of Dr. King, who have very little or even nothing to lose from the current system. Um, and so he continues and says, if they can be helped to take action together, they will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. And, you know, I think we see this new and unsettling force, you know, forming and developing and 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 disrupting this, this complacent national life um, um, that gets us, you know, into the real issues of our day and away from from some of the ways that the the tweets and and uh, other things are distracting. Most high schools, at least in the metropolitan area where we're broadcasting from, and I assume that there are others throughout the country, take the position that the 60s were a period of time when things happened. There was an unpopular war. There were assassinations. There was difficulty. There was poverty and demonstrations. If you could develop a criteria, a curriculum that could be presented in a school classroom, how would you teach, Liz, social and economic activism? How would you encourage people to embrace it, especially the young, who don't have a pervasive understanding of the need? So I know that there are educators that have a lot more experience in this than than I do. Um, Some of them are even in my family. But what I do know is that if we don't, if we're not taught a history that looks at how social changes happened in the past, if we're not taught about the reality, the current reality and context that we're living in, in terms of, of how racism, how poverty, how ecological devastation, how militarism are, are impacting our lives today. And if we don't give people a chance to engage in being able to see that they can be agents of change, um, that they have gifts to bring, um, then, you know, I think uh, we're not doing a true educational service to, to our young people and to our, our society. And so, um, you know, I, I'm sure there are people that are, and in fact, throughout this campaign and throughout this country, there are folks that are, are developing curriculum and and doing important, you know, teaching on, on these lessons that, that do bring about history, that look at, um, you know, the reality of who is poor and why people are poor today. Because um, I think those kinds of um, activities and those kinds of lessons are so vitally important. In your view, Liz, and all of us really are in the same boat when it comes to judging what will happen come the first Tuesday after the first Monday this coming November, Do you feel candidates that present what has been called a a socialist democratic view have a chance on the national scale, or does one have to dilute the message to get into office first? You know, again, uh, the work that we're doing is about, you know, grassroots leaders and communities coming forward um, with their demands. and those are not diluted demands, right? Those um, those are people, you know, can stop at nothing until they actually are able to earn li- living wages and, and have health care for their families. And so, um, you know, I think I think the way that we're approaching this work is as a movement um, and not thinking about, you know, particular, I mean, folks are, are being inspired um, by this work to run, for political office, um, and that's always happened in history. Um, Liz, but, if I may, 
please hold that thought. Uh, this is such a pertinent and important discussion. We'll be back in a moment. Uh, this is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Stay with us. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. We're in the final segment of what has really been a gratifying conversation with the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, Director of the Cairo Center and co-chair of an effort at developing an American moral imperative. Liz, if you would continue with that thought and take it where you will. So, yeah, I was just talking about, you know, the, the work that we're trying to do to build a real power base amongst poor people, amongst moral leaders, amongst all people of conscience and activism, um, in order to, to make the issues um, center, to make the, the demands. And, you know, I would encourage folks that are interested to go to the Poor People's Campaign website. It's poorpeoplescampaign.org. Um, and, and read those extensive demands that, that folks have come up with um, throughout our organizing work. Um, because those issues um, are, are the issues that people have come forward to us saying, you know, this is what we need and this is what we're prepared to fight for. And so that, that, that's been the focus of our work, has been to, um, to try to shift the narrative, to try to... Uh, you know, have our society um, addressing the real issues of our day, um, seeing those as the real moral issues of our day, health care and living wages and education and clean water and, and a healthy environment and, and a, a budget that prioritizes people over profit and over military. Um, shifting this narrative, building the power of people to, to make that a reality and to impact elections and to impact policy, not to impact one particular election or to vote for one particular candidate, but to, to make our political system have to address the real issues of our day, um, to have to, you know, not just water down um, different problems, but, but to see that um, the only solution that there is to the, the lack of affordable housing is to have affordable housing. And the solution to, to the lack of universal health care is to have universal health care. Um, and, you know, what we're finding in thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the country who, uh, again, are, are living very difficult lives but who are coming forward to, to advocate for themselves and their communities is that, you know, people are really hungry and ready for a moral revolution. You have such a passionate voice talking about passionate issues. Liz, have you ever thought in the private moments of entering the political sphere yourself? So I think that this is the political sphere. I think that building a grassroots moral movement of the people is the best way and really one of the only ways in history that people have really impacted politics. And I'm not interested in, in being a political candidate. Um, I, uh, you know, but will always be engaged in political life um, because I really believe that, that we need a movement um, and that great change comes when people come together and build such a movement. Um, and, you know, some of our friends who are in politics often say, you know, they, they need a movement, too, um, that they need people 
um, out there in the in the community in the streets um, saying that this is you know what we're trying to to build and and to um, and to be and so that's that's you know that's how I and many of us um, feel like we can impact political life in this country um, and in this world in fact um, by building up the power of of poor people and especially people that are that are not always heard of um, or paid attention to um, uh, by our, our elected officials. For the person in the listening audience who's in their high ranch with their steak on the barbecue, who's listening to this and saying to themselves, well, what can I do? How can I get started? What issues can I take? What actions can I follow? What immediate advice would you give to that person listening to this program right now? So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is organized in 40 states across the country. So if people are interested in connecting up with others um, that are being impacted by these issues or more impacted by these issues and wanting to do something, there are people probably right in your own community who are engaged in this, in this work. So those folks should reach out to go down to our website, poorpeoplescampaign.org, and and sign up and um, and and connect up with the the legal the leaders in in your area. Um, and then in terms of just grassroots involvement um, and change making, you know, I think that starts with people, you know, talking to each other and and identifying the issues that are affecting people's lives, and then coming up with coordinated campaigns to to really address those issues. And so, you know, again. Everywhere across this country, there are people, you know, holding barbecues to raise money for each other's, you know, health care procedures. There's folks that are, are doing um, door knocking and, and uh, um, other kind of organizing in order to pass uh, policies that are going to um, improve people's lives for the better. Um, so I, I think there's everyone is needed. Um, we are living in difficult and dangerous times. Um, and in, in times such as these, you know, we all have to step forward and, and try to do something um, to make this a better place. And, you know, I think that starts with, with connecting up with other folks, you know, in your area and, and being able to, to not just work on one issue, but to see how interrelated um, all of the injustices our society is facing right now are and that we can, we can do something about it. So much of this is tied up in the individual's sense of spirituality. We notice so much in the news and in our own culture the fact that spirituality has become a partisan issue. Do you feel as part of your program there should be an awakening to the need to eliminate distinction, Hindu, Protestant, Catholic, or Jain, poverty is poverty? We do need the elimination of those walls and doors and boundaries, how does your program consider going about doing that? One of the things that's been really exciting about the Poor People's Campaign has been the, the support and involvement of people from many, many different faith communities. Um, so when Dr. King 
launched the Poor People's Campaign back in 1967 and 68, there was actually no major religious denomination that came out in support. Um, after he was assassinated and there was almost uh, the Resurrection City and Poor People's Campaign in March that went forward, almost as a commemoration or a memorial to him, um, some different church groupings came forward at that point. But um, what's been amazing is that when we launched this this campaign in 2018, um, at the launch in December of 2017, we had uh, 12 major faith bodies there to say they were not just passing a resolution, not just patting us on the back, not just saying they would pray for us, but that those faith groupings, those bodies, those denominations um, were going to to be involved in every step of the way of this campaign. Um, and that's been amongst Hindus and Buddhists, that's been amongst Muslims and Jews and Christians, and every stripe of Christianity. Um, it's been evangelicals and Catholics, it's been um, mainline Protestants, um, Pentecostals. And so what, what's been amazing about this is that um, people have come together, you know, in their difference, but saying, you know, we need a moral revival in this time, um, and that the moral issues of our day, you know, are are issues such as health care and voting rights and um, and education for our kids. And so um, that's that's been really encouraging to see, um, and it's it's very important, you know, if we're going to be able to to build really a moral movement, um, having moral leaders from faith traditions across the world, you know, come forward and say, you know, our deepest faith convictions and traditions say that, that we have to be on the side of justice, um, and, uh, and then being willing to put themselves and their bodies out there, um, uh, to, to make that a reality. The poets say that an optimist can promise you tomorrow. There's a little to your voice when you talk about the things you're doing and your hopes for tomorrow. Are you an optimist by nature when it comes to an issue so complex as this? Am I? Can you say the last part? The question is certainly. When you see tomorrow's sunrise, do you foresee a time? when the issues that we've been discussing for the past 50-some-odd minutes are delineated, compromised, solved, and it's a better world for our efforts today? So I, I feel very hopeful um, that, that change is going to come, and a lot of that is, is based in history, um, you know, one of the things that Dr. King said is that when it's darkest at night is when you can see the stars. And I think that, you know, right now there are people um, who are suffering a great deal, many of us, millions of us, but who haven't let that be the last word. And so, um, you know, I feel very hopeful that change is going to come um, and 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 that will make, you know, life better for, 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 for so many. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I wake up in each morning, um, and I look at the kids that I'm raising, um, my own and others in the movement, um, 
I I need their their futures to be brighter than our current present reality is, and I I believe they can be because um, because I also know that there are thousands and thousands of people across this country and world who wake up every morning thinking about how to make it better, and so I believe we can. I must ask in a very pragmatic, personal way. How do you manage to balance family, children, experience, responsibilities, and this movement? You seem to have a great many plates spinning in the air. There's always a lot going on, and um, I am personally very, very lucky to have an incredibly supportive family, both a family of biological family, um, the, the person I married as well, but then also a Muslim family that, uh, you know, makes it work. Um, it's a lot of, a lot of traveling, a lot of work, but, um, uh, it's also, you know, what our lives matter is how we impact others. And so I am very lucky. You could maybe even hear my kids are home today from school. Uh, the New York City public schools are off for the Jewish holidays, and so they uh, they come along and are a part of all of this work, and you know it's it makes their lives even more fulfilling. You do sound like a rose to life's thorn. I would wonder uh, we're approaching less than five minutes in this program. Is there an attempt to document your efforts, a film, a book, something? that an individual can refer back to as a modus, a plan, a set of instructions, and just your very experiences? Yeah, so, I mean, I have a book um, that is about the biblical basis for this work. It's called Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. Um, You know, I encourage people to check it out because uh, I think there's a lot that we get wrong. Um, Reverend Barbara and myself have a book coming out this winter. It's called Revive Us Again. Um, and it's uh, primarily a bunch of sermons that he's preached over the last couple of years as we've been building this campaign. Um, there's a documentary film being made based on the Poor People's Campaign, especially the 40 Days, um, that uh, Brava Media is producing. And... Um, and uh, I don't know when that will be available, but people should put look out for it. If people go to the Cairo Center website, um, you can find a series of short films that we produce for the Poor People's Campaign called America Will Be. It's based off of a poem that Langston Hughes wrote um, many years ago, but that's still very relevant for us today. And you can go to the Cairo Center website and to the poorpeoplescampaign.org website, and there's lots of materials. Some of them are Bible studies and other kinds of um, educational materials. Some of them are courses that we're teaching on these topics. Um, Some of them are writings and lessons that people have done or interviews. And so there is a lot documented about this work, Um, and so I really encourage people to, to check it out. Um, because uh, a lot of important 
writing and documenting is already going on. This program will be podcast, and it will be aired this Sunday at 10. For those in our listening audience who would like to have that visceral personal contact, are you going to be in the metropolitan area speaking, representing your views, presenting yourself to the living audience? Um, I, I am, and I, I don't know a lot about what my schedule is right now. Um, I'm getting ready to hit the road and be in Missouri and California and Virginia and D.C. in the next week. Um, but, uh, um, but there's always events happening in New York City, and uh, it is where I call home. And so um, uh, if people go to our websites, um, some of the next times that I'll be speaking and others will be are listed there. Also, the Cairo Center is, is offering a series of educational programming um, at a, a site in Hell's Kitchen in New York City um, on Tuesday evenings um, from 5.30 to... 8.30 um, in the evening. Um, it's called the People's Forum, and if people go to the People's Forum in New York um, website, uh, you can find out more about the Poor People's Campaign and the Cairo Center and the, and the free educational programming that we're doing there. We're unfortunately approaching the end of what has been an enlightening program. Perhaps we can do it again, Liz, at your discretion. But to those who are listening... There's much to be done. You've just heard from one of those persons who are leading the fight, the good and just fight for good and just change. At this stage, we've come to the point in this country's history where perhaps we can no longer say that we're standing, we're sitting, we're kneeling, we're doing whatever we are if we don't also consider what we are doing for the least of these. This has been our pleasure, Liz. This has been Seldom Said. We'll see you again.